Oh, Christ. Another pop culture podcast taking a long, hard look at classic albums. Why in the name of Screaming Jay Hawkins would I want to listen to that? Well, for a start, we don't set out with the assumption that you like these albums, or even that you should. Temporary Fandoms is a process. We take an artist and then listen to their complete discography and try to understand the nature of their appeal. Okay, it's not quite as scientific as that. I mean, it helps if one of us liked the band in question, and the best case scenario is that by the end of it, we'll have found something to enjoy. Well, that's what I'm hoping anyway, because today we're listening to Queens of the Stone Age, and honestly, I'm not entirely sure what I think of them. What do you make of Queens of the Stone Age? Listen with us, and if you want to share your thoughts, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans. And since you're listening to me, you've probably already figured out how you want to hear the podcast, but allow me also to mention that if you go to our Beat Rehab page, beat.rehab slash tempfans, you'll find all our past episodes too, along with a link to the Spotify versions which come edited together with actual tunes. You'll also find the Dancing About Architecture podcast, which is well worth a listen while you're waiting for the next episode of Temp Fan to drop. Enough preamble. Let's open the door to Ewan, and he'll tell you who our guests are today, and then we can start banging on about those records. Hello there, welcome to 2021 and Temporary Fandoms. Somehow we're back. Uh, we made it. We did 12, Nick, 12 episodes? 12 episodes, year? yeah. Somehow we did 12 episodes. And that was what? We did ESG, um, Butthole Surfers, Pogues, Mercury, uh, Mercury. Yep, yeah, David Bowie, uh, Yola Tengo, and Cam. Cam. I think that's everything. Okay, um... If you just had a weird echo there, that's because I was animated with my hands and pulled the microphone out of its socket. Um, hopefully, I'll fix that in the edit. Everybody is shaking their heads in disbelief already. Um, you know the drill. In a bit, we're going to basically start talking and taking you through the work of a particular artist. Um, before we do, a um, couple of things I'd like to say. Um, number one, if you like us, um, please leave a review somewhere. Um, it's really, really important. Subscriptions and algorithms and iTunes and all of that stuff. If you don't like us, don't leave a review. Um, tell your friends you don't like us. That's absolutely fine. If you're one of the many people on the internet who hates that guy who hates Can after the last episodes, hi, I'm that guy who hates Can. Um, you don't hate Can. If, <laughs> you got you got a little bit upset during Tago Mago. I, That's I not swore, hating can. I swore a lot. Um, well, anyway, I mean, if you, if you think I'm that guy, wait until the fall episodes in about two months' time. Um, if you really, 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 really like us, I mean, we're going to do this anyway because for some reason we like it, but you could go to buymeacoffee.com slash tempfans and buy us a coffee. Uh, we've been doing this for about a year now and nobody's ever bought me a coffee. Um, and that's pretty much it. You can find us at the usual places. We're on Instagram, uh, beat.rehab slash tempfans. Um, just Google us. You'll find us. Okay. Um, Nick, anything before we get on? Absolutely nothing. Fucking awesome. All right. So let's see what we've got today. Today, um, in his pod debut, um, we've got Scott Donald. Hey, Scott. Hello, hello. And who are you going to be taking us through today? 
Um, we're going to be following the immersion of Queens of the Stone Age, um, and we've put on to the beginning of that the Caius material, which starts in 1991. Uh, Queens of the Stone Age starts in 98, and through to the last album, which was Villains in 2017. And so just, just for clarity, Caius are the band that Queens of the Stone Age were formed out of. Exactly, yeah. So the sort of uh, testing ground, we could call it, for Queens of the Stone Age. Perfect, thank you. And also joining us is Queens of the Stone Age fan and self-professed gin wanker, uh, Sai. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Sorry, just before we started, we couldn't work out what to say after gin. That didn't say, make, make Sai sound like a wanker. So I just went with wanker. Um, you're going to hear us all have a big roundtable after uh, Scott takes us through how many albums? How many Queens of the Stone Age albums? Uh, there are six Queens of the Stone Age albums. And obviously... Seven, seven, bit- seven, seven. seven. <laughs> <laughs> this is the part where I say, I'll edit that out, but obviously I'm not editing that out. Um, so uh, the next voice you're going to hear will be Scott taking us through Caius and Queens of the Stone Age. Um, obviously, if you're listening on Spotify, there's the playlist which will have selected tracks from uh, their career interspersed in between Scott's mellifluous Scottish tones and after all that you'll have the four of us basically telling you what we think so I'll hand you over to Scott after this sex sales I want you to picture sex sales specifically the black silhouette of a female ovum set against a red background. From the right, a single male sperm cell is penetrating the egg to form the letter Q. Queens of the Stone Age, Songs for the Deaf. This virile image comes from the platinum-selling album which, for many, has become the band's benchmark. Songs for the Deaf's message and the message from Queens of the Stone Age is, I think, simple. The message is sexy. Like their evolving Q logo, the band's lineup has changed significantly from album to album, and I'll be doing my best during this immersion to keep count. However, throughout that time, one constant has remained the band's founder, Josh Homme. The revolving studio door may have seen a whole host of influential musicians contribute to the Quatsa sound, but it's been Homme's vision at the core. Rock should be heavy enough for the boys and sweet enough for the girls. A simple statement, perhaps, for simpler times, but having it as a guiding principle set Homie on course to produce some of the deepest, grooviest sounds ever made by a guitar. The man is cool. Cool in the way that only Americans can be. He wants to be Mr. Cool, and therefore he is. Along with his long list of supporters, there are also those who have lived to regret crossing the six-foot, four-inch man's path clumsy roadies, anti-social crowd members, and, in one case, a poor female photographer, which he rightly apologised for afterwards. Homie doesn't seem to be a man you want to fuck with. I'd love to meet him, but I imagine it could be quite intimidating, and perhaps it would remain that way unless you made it into his inner circle. He may be from California, but we're not talking LA here. This is Joshua Tree in the Mojave Desert. We're talking Southern US and all that comes with it, from beefsteaks on barbecues to the eye for an eye tribalism. 
Together, we will examine this not-so-gentle giant sound in all its heaviness and sweetness by looking briefly at its origins in Caius and then its development in Queens of the Stone Age. There will also be a brief nod to the various other desert sounds and side project that Homi has added his ginger spice to. For this immersion, as well as plundering the usual sources like Wikipedia and Reddit, I've leaned heavily on Joel McIver's biography, No One Knows. It's been an excellent source of material, and while I don't entirely agree with all of his opinions, and I've expanded on a couple of areas, he nevertheless did a great job of narrating the band's history up until 2013. So, can you smell the gasoline? Can you taste the dust? Can you feel the bass rumbling across the scorched earth? Line up those shot glasses, because for this immersion, the suggested pairing is tequila on the rocks. If there's an electric guitar sitting near you, pick it up. Any guitar. Homie isn't a guitar snob. Run a plectrum down the strings and listen to that nice, crisp, standard tuning. Now, grab that first tuning peg for the E string and take it down a whole step to a D. Feeling loosey-goosey? We're not finished. Do it again. Don't stop turning until it's all the way down to a subterranean sea. Unscrew those other five pegs until they're down two whole steps too, and for the pied de resistance, take the guitar lead, plug it into a bass amp, and turn that gain way up. We've now taken our first step into understanding Josh Homme's guitar sound. Over the years, he would develop this sound through various pedals and settings, which he still keeps pretty close to his chest, but for his early material, there's not really much going on here apart from the tuning, the bass amp, and his trusty, and now much sought after, Ovation guitar. I don't know if it's the overdriven bass sound, or something about the levels at the mixing desk, but Caius's stoner rock always sounds oddly suppressed to me, in a good way. You're undoubtedly listening to hard rock, but it's such a solid block of noise that nothing really jumps out to scare you or begin to grate like it can with some metal bands. That's not to say there aren't similarities with other metal bands. Caius were often compared to Black Sabbath, who are sometimes credited with creating the first stoner rock album. However, Homi never really acknowledges the Black Sabbath comparison. Despite other band members being big metal fans, Homi and Caius frontman John Garcia didn't really like any comparisons to metal, attributing their influences more to punk bands like Black Flag, Minor Threat, Ramones, Misfits, which may well explain why I like them. Feel free to have a Google at the term stoner rock. The term is often used synonymously with desert rock, which I perhaps prefer, but both help paint a fuzzy picture of an exotic sound I don't quite understand. Is this what the desert sounds like? Is this the type of music that Americans listen to, stoned? It was hip-hop and reggae all the way where I grew up. Either way, neither of them are terms the band particularly embraced, so I'm not going to dwell on them. Our story starts in Palm Desert, California, where the young Josh Homme has little else to do except fry under the desert sun. He had asked his parents for a drum kit to entertain himself, but was refused. I've heard him say that he always feels like a drummer or percussionist at heart, which might go some way to explaining his rhythm-heavy guitar style. Instead of drums, he was given the Ovation guitar at the age of nine after taking up polka lessons. <laughs> 
1985, at the age of 12, he joined his first band, Autocracy, which was perhaps a slight bit of foreshadowing considering his future role in Queens of the Stone Age. At 14, he started playing with drummer Brad Bjork and bass player Chris Cockrell. The band were called Katzenjama, a German word which translates as caterwauling, uh, an old word I believe for hangover. This was long before the Norwegian band formed. Also present was soon-to-be-replaced bassist Nick Oliveri. All they needed was a frontman, step up, John Garcia. I played football with Nick Oliveri and Brant Bjork and Chris Cockrell, the original bass player. Nick kept bugging me to see his band, Katzenjammer, play. This is when they still jammed in Brant's room. So one day, me and my buddy went up there, and that was it for me. I wanted a piece of it. At an early rehearsal, Garcia recalls, They were playing this mean, heavy, fast punk rock music. Wow, I started saying this really fast punk rock style. Blah, 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 blah. And Brant stopped right after the first verse, and he goes, No, John, try singing like this. And he started singing this really beautiful melody. And I said, well, fuck, you want me to really sing? Vocals honed, it was already time for a name change. And Brant Bjork decided upon Sons of Caius, taking it from an undead monster found in the first edition of the advanced Dungeons and Dragons book, Fiendfolio. Cool. They self-released an eponymous debut EP featuring Chris Cockrell on bass. But our main immersion starts with the first album, Wretch, by which time Cockrell had been replaced by Nick Oliveri, the man who was destined to cause deep division among Quatsa fans. Following the EP, the band gradually built a local following in Pan Desert and frequently performed at parties in and around the isolated towns of Southern California's desert areas. With little to do in their hometowns, locals would escape to the wide expanse of the desert at nightfall. These impromptu and predominantly outdoor shows were referred to locally as generator parties due to the gasoline-powered generators used to provide electricity for the equipment. They have since become exaggerated into festival-sized myths, but here Nick Oliveri recalls their true small-town feel. There would be three or four bands, a keg of beer and a raging bonfire. We were all underage, people would run around naked and there was sand everywhere, in your amps, in your ass. As well as the underage drinking and sandy asses, there are also stories of drugs, meth labs and Mexican gangbangers too. The desert terrain was ideal for escaping cops, whose patrol cars were no match for the party goers 4x4s. Homie commented that playing in the desert was the shaping factor for the band, noting there's no clubs here, so you can only play for free. If people don't like you, they'll tell you, you can't suck. It was after these desert gigs that their future producer, Chris Goss, saw them, after getting his hands on a demo from BMI. As they branched out, Goss also saw them playing the LA circuit, where Homie would apparently help set up lighting at raves in exchange for free ecstasy. Their break came at Hollywood's Raji's Club, where they played for the chameleon label president, Bob Buziak. He was suitably impressed and signed them under subsidiary label, Dally Records. It was agreed that the name Sons of Caius was too clunky and it was shortened to Caius. Using material from their first EP, the band produced their first full-length album, Wretch. Wretch has its moments but still sounds like a band in progress. It didn't do much to impress the scene and it failed to capture the raw energy that was being unleashed at their live gigs. 
I've sadly only been allowed by the podcasting powers to choose two Caius songs for the Spotify playlist, which is a shame because my affection for Caius has really grown since we did the original immersion. So in my pettiness, I decided not to choose the excellent punk rock track Katzenjammer from the debut, but I've instead chosen Big Bikes, which is a song about wanting some quote-unquote pussy from a quote-unquote bitch on a big bike. I also have to skim through the three other Caius albums, which means I can't tell you about the importance of the producer Chris Goss. You don't get to hear me wax lyrical about their best album, the follow-up, Blues for the Red Sun. Although, if you're on Spotify, you do get to hear one of my favourite tracks from it. No, you don't get to find out why Oliveri left, what his replacement Scott Reader added, and why that makes any hope of a reunion pretty messy. Wouldn't you like to know about the Metallica gig Caius supported? The one where the Metallica sound guy let Caius play full blast the first night before realising it was going to make Metallica look like shit? Well, you can't hear about that. Or Bjork's departure. Or future Quatza drummer Alfredo Hernandez replacing him for their third album, Welcome to Sky Valley. I suppose you'd like to know about the drug and margarita fueled parties and the pretty aptly named final Caius album, and the circus leaves town, but no, I'm not telling you anything about any of that. What I can tell you is that in 1995, with four albums to their name, four music videos, four different lineups, and one single, the demonic desert dweller Caius was defeated. Defeated by boredom. Quotes from band members about the split emphasise wanting to quit while the going was good, fear of the competition, the punk rock guilt of not wanting to sell out and wanting to try something else. Well, it would take a while before Homie discovered what that something else was, but he remembers the catalyst that made him want to quit Caius. I was disillusioned. Punk rock had blown up in my face, and then I heard Iggy Pop's Lust for Life and The Idiot for the first time. If you're in a band, those lyrics hit you. They were so true. Iggy and the Stooges said everything I wanted to say better than I could say it. It made me want to quit, so I did. Homie's Iggy Pop epiphany sent the 21-year-old wandering off to Seattle around Caius' breakup in 95-96. Homie liked the idea of being in a place where the music was feeling a bit lost, like he was. Seattle was still recovering from grunge fever and it seemed like the perfect place. Despite a few trips back to the desert to escape Seattle's cold winters, he seems to have enjoyed his time there. He even applied to the University of Washington to study business, but decided to postpone the application when he met Mark Lanigan, then frontman of The Screaming Trees. Lanigan had asked Dinosaur Jr's Mike Johnson to tour with The Screaming Trees, but the more subdued Johnson told him, absolutely not, you're insane. But my friend will do it, and thus Homie and Lanigan were introduced. Homie revelled in his chance to get back in the saddle, and was particularly taken with the position of rhythm guitarist. Two years and all I did was smoke pot, play music and read books. It was great to be with the trees and not have any responsibility. I was just there to add more sound to the live show. Intending to do Lollapalooza and one tour before going back to school, Homie had another revelation. Somewhere in New Mexico, I had this epiphany. I was like, what am I doing going to school? Who cares if there's too many bands? Who cares if no one else likes my music? That's what I hated about punk rock, trying to anticipate what someone you don't know might think, the they theory. I dropped all that shit. 
left that attitude behind.